Damon, hello. How are you today? I'm doing great. Doing great. How are you? I am doing well, too. I've got a sort of salt and pepper mountain outside my window. It's got snow at some vapor point, and below it, it's super sunny and green, which is just kind of cool to see the contrast. It reminds me of an image from two days ago here where I live, where the sun was poking through the clouds, and it was dumping snow at the same time. It was one of those juxtapositions that don't often occur, but I found myself gravitating towards spending a few minutes in it. It's sunny, but also extremely white. Right. It's like the fourth layer of a snowman or something Ooh. like that. Oh, <laughs> this has gotten very deep. Yes. Uh, does the fourth layer melt or is it just inside us? It might be in our minds. Today, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it means to be in your head and how to get out again. Sound good? Uh, sounds great. So first, let me define in my layman's terms what being in my head means. To me, it means being stuck in small, repetitive, often negative thinking. Basically, I'm not enough. The situation I'm in isn't enough. What I have, what I've done, what I'm doing, it should all be more or different somehow. I think that's a pretty good general summary of where I am when I'm in my head. But do you have a more clinical description of that? I'm not sure I have a more clinical description, but I guess I would only add that that small, repetitive, negative thinking that you mentioned occurs somewhere around 55,000 times a day. Whoa. Uh, so it's very human of you to feel that way. So it's human to be in our heads. And at the same time, I hope I have a couple practices for getting out of our heads too. Can I share a couple with you and sort of get your take and hear what you do and what you advise people to do to get out of their heads? Absolutely. So one is this really simple visualization I call space. I start by sitting down. I close my eyes. I'm breathing naturally. And then I picture myself actually doing just that right there, where I am, right now, when I am, eyes closed, breathing. I see my face from the outside. And I pan out. And now I see the room I'm in, whatever's to the left of me, whatever's to the right, and there I am, my whole body sitting there in the middle. I pan out again, and now I see my whole house in cross-section, like a dollhouse. And in it, I'm sitting in whatever room I'm in, meditating. Chrissy might be downstairs in the kitchen, making breakfast. Rasa might be in her room, getting dressed. And meanwhile, the laundry is hanging in the laundry room. The guest bed is downstairs in the guest room. The couch and the bookshelves are in the living room. I can see it all as it is right now, whether someone's there or not. And I pan out again, still in that present moment, the moment where I'm sitting there breathing. And now my house is the size of a Monopoly house. I'm looking at my whole block. And myself and the hundreds of other people on this block are teeny figures, but we're still real. And we're still doing things. Someone might be texting. 
Someone might be getting ready for work. Someone might be starting a car, watching TV, whatever. The things that are actually happening as I'm breathing in and breathing out. And I keep panning out still in this present moment, visualizing my entire neighborhood, then my whole city, then my whole state, and then the whole country. And by now, my house is long gone from view, much less myself. My city is this teeny dot in my state, which is a little square in the country. And I keep going until the country is one shape in our larger continent. And our continent is one shape in our larger planet. And on that planet, there's, you know, 8 billion of us. There's old people, young people, famous, anonymous, friends, family, strangers. I'll meet someday and people I'll never know. And there's whales in the ocean and wildebeest on the Serengeti and eagles soaring overhead. And I still keep going. And this is still in that present moment, these five minutes that I'm sitting here doing this. Until Earth itself shrinks to marble size from that perspective. Until our solar system does. Until the entire galaxy is the size of a dot. And then even that disappears. And what's mind-blowing to me every time I do this is that it's all true. This isn't some visualization of what I want to happen or a different way of seeing things. It's not a fantasy. All that really does exist right here, right now, at the same time that I'm sitting here. And that space, it's getting out of my head by literally getting outside of my head, by panning out bigger and bigger until whatever was on my mind is so small, it kind of vanishes by that cosmic comparison. Wow. I'm curious, after those five minutes, what's changed about your state? I feel like the concerns that were so swelling that they felt like they filled my head and it felt like my head filled my entire body and it felt like my body filled the entire world and I couldn't see beyond my own nose. Now, all of those things have shrunk uh, to a poppy seed lost on the carpet of the universe. It's like taking a decongestant, if you will. And my head is clear and this, you know, occupying force is so radically diminished. I guess another analogy, I think this is one the Buddha used, is dilution. If you put uh, a tablespoon of salt in a cup of water, it's going to taste unbearably salty. But if you put the same tablespoon of salt in a river, you won't even notice it. And so I guess I'm just sort of expanding what I can see of the world I'm in to that river or in fact, well beyond that. Sounds like a really pragmatic and effective practice. And I think you're touching on, you know, a concept that feels so relevant and it's so obvious in a way, but just one of those things that just sort of passes right through us. And that is paying attention to your attention and mm. also thinking about perspective. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately because of the fact that as a world, as a planet, there's so many sort of existential threats or pain points where all of us are feeling the lack of safety. And then I've been thinking about what that safety really was in the first place. And to your point, does my 401k 
change anything that you just said about the nature of reality? No. But for a lot of reasons, we'd like to construct these boxes and these places that we feel like we know all the rules and our fallback strategies and mechanisms. But the problem with that is that we can feel like the walls are closing in and really stifle ourselves from the ability to explore the expansiveness of what's real, not just what's in our heads. So it's a pretty interesting thing that you've got going there. And in a way, you're also kind of playing around with a subject-object split, where you are not just seeing yourself through your own thoughts, but you're seeing yourself as a poppy seed in the universe's carpet. And I think at first glance, that can sound really overwhelming, but it sounds to me like you find it quite comforting. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're congested, then the decongestant is wonderful. And maybe on the other hand, if you're feeling starved for self, you need almost the kind of opposite remedy. And I think the where's Waldo of all of this goes back to what you said initially, and that is sort of being stuck in a repetitive negative thinking. And then you went on to talk about what the thinking was describing, that you're not enough, etc. And I think the real kicker for people in general is that they have a tendency to think that they can think their way out of thinking. Hmm. Right? And tail of the dog. <laughs> round and round and round. And so by creating all that space, I think what you're also doing is you're breaking the the spell. You are, as they say, defusing. Cognitive diffusion is a term in psychology where you're literally removing yourself from living inside your thoughts and being directed by them. And instead, you're looking at them. Through our evolution, we have a negativity bias. Our brain is looking out for danger. And so it is quick to press that alarm button. I think it's about nine to one, where we're thinking more along the lines of danger, critical type thinking. But the upshot of that is that we, we have around 60,000 thoughts a day. So that leaves 5,000 that are more productive, positive, and creative. And I think what you just did right there with your practice is that you elected to choose one of those 5,000 and say, hey, you know, why don't we do the space exercise? It's creative and it's more productive. And so I think the game is paying attention to attention. None of those things go away. It's more about where we elect to train our focus or our attention. And I think you're really stumbling on hey, this isn't just a practice. This isn't just something I'm doing because a Buddhist lama told me to do this. You're actually doing this thing and it's changing your state. It's changing your perception. And it's having a real impact on your ability to mitigate your moment-to-moment life. And I think visualization is often associated with fantasy. But ironically, what I'm picturing is true. That is what is actually out there, what is actually happening versus the thoughts in my head, which are arguably a lot more fictional. They're a story I'm telling myself or a story I'm being told by my thoughts. Absolutely. There's a, a great book called Stealing Fire. The co-authors, Jamie Wheel and 
Stephen Kotler estimated that we spend as a society around $4 trillion a year trying to get out of our own heads with drugs and gambling, social media, porn and sports, dare I say, maybe listening to podcasts as well. <laughs> but Certain podcasts. Certain podcasts, exactly. But if that's true, that as a species, we're trying to get out of our own heads, then we have to ask ourselves why. And I think, I think your initial lead into this is one of the reasons why. We're not very nice to ourselves. We blow things out of proportion. We jump to conclusions. And we really do press that alarm bell with this default mode network and the rumination of our thinking mind. And we don't quite understand or grasp the fact that our thoughts aren't necessarily wholly us. And I think that's the real thing that blows people away. What's crazy is I often get there by the third step, by the point where I've gotten big enough that I'm hitting other people and what they might be thinking or feeling, even my own wife and my own daughter, because they have something they want to do and they have something on their mind. And I cross the street to the neighbors at a certain point. You know, I don't usually even have to get out of the neighborhood before I realize, gosh, there's so many thoughts. Could mine be the only one that is truly valid and urgent? <laughs> or uh, are these all you know, happening at once and we're all kind of under a, a shared burden, if not a shared delusion? Again, a really smart and great practice. I believe the man's name is Douglas Harding. And the concept or theory is on having no head. So his thesis on this is that if we can live life as if we have no head, then what you're taking in sensory-wise becomes more rich in its ability to inform and connect to our bodies, our hearts, our guts, and sort of pointing that camera out. Because when we point the camera back, it goes straight to our head. We don't typically point the camera back to our arm or our toe. We typically point the camera back to our head and our thoughts, and then we construct more thoughts and we tell more stories and we make more assumptions about, hey, that person just looked at me and they had a funny look on their face. We just sort of insert what we think they're thinking. So this whole idea of having no head is a great way to practice living out. And to your point, you know, the idea that, that your daughter and your wife are doing something at the same time you're doing something, but, but to take their perspective can be incredibly liberating. I mean, talk about having no head. And then on the flip side of that is this step one is to see my own face. And I don't mean look in a mirror, just realize that there's someone with a face and a body, which is not a way I normally see myself. And it makes me more a person rather than me, 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 I, 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 I. And so when I see the other people, they're at the same level. And, you know, it's like, oh, this is a guy who's sitting there with his eyes closed and he's breathing and he's <laughs> visualizing something. And then I get to the next person. Even though I happen to be that guy, it kind of puts me on the same level as everybody else, for better or for worse. Sounds like a great practice. So one more I wanted to run by you. And this is a little bit more bodily and it's question-based rather than visualization-based. And I call it toe, hip, elbow, chin. <laughs> and those are basically the four question steps. So when I'm in my head, 
when I'm comparing or judging or self-judging. I stop and I do kind of a philosophical body scan with some simple questions. So first question, does my toe have a problem with this situation? (laughs) No, probably not. Usually is the answer I'd get. Then I'm like, does my hip have a problem with this situation? Hmm. No. Does my elbow have a problem with, you know, my taxes or the person driving in front of me a little more slowly or the shopping item that they seem to be out of stock? No, not my elbow. Hmm. Does my chin have a problem? No. So who or what has the problem if that alarm bell is going off? There's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. And I answer immediately, my brain. It's obvious. My brain. Okay. My whole brain? Every single part of it? And then it's like, well, no. You know, a lot of your brain's doing other things. Okay. So it's a part of my brain. And at this point, I'm kind of smiling (laughs) Uh, because it just starts to seem so silly. It's like my whole sense of myself and my place in the universe is determined by some finite but indeterminate combination of squishy gray and white matter. And Mm. that squish is enough of myself to say all of me should be, you know, angry or ashamed or joyful or proud. And I just ask, like, why trust some brain pieces? Why not my toe? Why not my hip? Why not my elbow? Why not my chin? Or if those don't seem important enough, why not my lungs that I, you know, take every breath in and out with? Or why not my heart? You know, those are the things that if if they don't work, I'm not alive. And again, that, that I find really transformative, but in a sort of different way. And I wonder if you could tell me what what is happening when I'm asking those questions and, and kind of getting those answers? The the frame that I feel like this fits through is more along the lines of critical thinking. What you're doing right there, you're creating and practicing the ability to kind of engage in this reflective and independent thinking as opposed to the reflexive alarm bell, the amygdala, you know, if you think about some of the, the main concepts of, of a person who can sort of adeptly use critical thinking is to identify and evaluate arguments. So in, in this process, your instinct is to make this argument, but then you evaluate, you know, why am I making this argument? And then you detect some inconsistencies or potentially some mistakes in the rationale. And by doing so, now you're starting to kind of distance yourself. You're no longer kind of trapped inside the argument, but you're outside of the argument now looking at it. And then you systematically went through different body parts to see if you could solve the problem with your toe, your elbow. And it turns out the answer is no, I cannot corroborate the case from my toe or my elbow or even a a part of my brain. And then at that point in time, you have the space. Coming back to that word that you started with, space. You have the ability to insert your own beliefs and potentially your own value system into that space. And now your perspective of the situation has shifted. And I think that's something that's underrated 
with these types of exercises. You hear the old model like 10,000 hours, it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert. Well, you can make a state change in the matter of minutes. Two minutes it took you to do that exercise. How you are literally framing a problem or a situation in the world around you has shifted or maybe has become more spacious or just withered away. And so it's, it's a potent type of exercise to use. The tricky part is that a lot of people don't use things like this because once you're trapped in sort of that thinking spiral, you don't want to do this exercise. Yes. It's a habit. It's like, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but there's the old issue of, do I have a problem? Well, let me get some exercise let me drink plenty of water and let me get a good night's sleep. If I still have a problem after those things, let me try to solve the problem. Otherwise, maybe it's needed to move my body, hydrate and rest. And what this is, is the sort of 22nd version of that. It's like, do I have a problem? Well, let me see. Does all of my parts have a problem? Do any of my parts other than this sort of thought have a problem? Exactly. Exactly. So how do we habituate? How do we change the instinct? And, you know, you talked about space on a grand level. I'd like us to think now about space on a microscopic level. There's a stimuli that comes in before we just go into the reaction echo chamber that typically happens. Is it possible to take just a little space before we react And if we do take a little space, potentially we can respond. So again, this is kind of a game of millimeters that we're talking about. It's like a habit sandwich. There's going to be the the stimuli, which is the bun. And then there's the habit in the middle, which is the meat. And then there's the kind of the the feeling we get afterwards, which will be the, the bottom layer, the other bun. And really what we're saying and what I think is effective about your strategy and your practices, the stimuli didn't change. And in a lot of ways, uh, the payoff that you get didn't change either. But what you inserted in the middle changed. And just merely by inserting something different in the middle of that hamburger, that bun, you can quite seriously change your reality. You've guided me through situations where I'm having an emotional experience and you ask, where do you feel that in your body? And this seems... A little different than that. It's sort of going to a part of my mind that seems like it's speaking for all of me or is me. Are, are there other ways to tap into our bodies to get out of our heads? I suppose exercise is the most obvious and immediate example. Absolutely, there are. And a field now that's really kind of taking off is this field around embodied cognition. And, and sort of the buzz phrase is, your body is your mind. There are nearly as many neurons in your heart and your gut as there are in your brain. There's some real practicality to thinking about your body as collecting information, data centers. So that's number one. And moving your body, of course, is definitely something that we can do. But there are more stealth ways potentially to be thinking about this. Let's say, for example, you wanted to jump on the treadmill. Are you moving your body? Yes. 
But if you're on the treadmill and you're watching CNN, you are still trapped in your mind. Whereas if you were to go on a, a hike that, say, for example, had uneven ground and you had to be mindful of every step you took because you, you had to thrust into the present moment, you're no longer ruminating on the issues that are going on in the world. You have to be right there. So you've sort of put your body in a situation where it had to be, where you had to drive your focus into the deep now, as I would like to say it. And when you cultivate that state, you are now setting the intentions to change the neuroelectricity and neurochemistry in your brain. And in a way, we're cultivating the state of flow, which is quite literally what it sounds like. And everything flows together. And when we're in the state of flow, our inner critic, part of our prefrontal cortex, part of our brain, it shuts down. So we are no longer entertaining those 55,000 negative thoughts. We are in the moment and action and awareness merge. And it's been called like the ultimate state of human consciousness, where we perform our best and where you feel our best. And it's not just for athletes. Flow can happen taking a hike. It can happen in a good conversation. So I would say the move further, thinking about the body, how can we use movement, breath practice, even vision to help cultivate the conditions and sort of stack these activities to allow us to enter into uh, this type of flow state? I'm picturing a microphone that has somehow been given to the brain or a particular thought in the brain and somehow it gets to do all the speaking. And the space exercise is about getting a lot of space away from that speaker <laughs> till it is dim to silent at the distance of the cosmos. And the body exercise that I said next is more like passing the mic and saying, okay, well, this person's had what they have to say. What do you have to say? 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 And realizing, well, maybe there's actually not consensus around the kind of panic or the punishing negative feeling that was the only voice that was heard before. I think your example is exactly in line with this type of thinking. If you're using language to try to reason with the brain when it has already been convinced of its rationale, it's a losing argument. When we argue, we're all convinced that we're right. And typically the point we're trying to make is to corroborate our own sense of rationality and truth. So we need to go to the deeper, more emotional non-thinking part of our being. And that's true within a negotiation between two people, but it's also true in this case with yourself. And that's why I, at the beginning I said people try to think their way out of thinking and it, it just doesn't work. We're, we've already convinced ourselves, at least in our thinking mind, of what we believe and why we believe it. So if we're trying to explain that in more thinking terminology, we don't stand a chance. 
So you're absolutely right that strategies that kind of go around the edge are much more effective and we have a much greater chance of actually making a state change, which ultimately will change the way we're thinking. And that's actually, I think, the most important point. Instead of changing the thinking, change the state. And the state can be changed through these exercises that you're talking about, and they can be changed through some of the exercises that I'm talking about with with more of this embodied cognition. And then once the state is changed, the thinking typically can then open up. Uh, We create that space, and often we can see that, you know, we were sort of thinking our way in a box. One of your activities made me think about this as well, is that when you ask the right questions, you have a chance. So your questions were, does my toe have a problem with this? When you started to do that body scan within that framework, you're asking the kind of question that the brain is saying, hmm, what's he getting at here? And you didn't just go straight to the problem. And so that is another strategy that really underlines how we can be effective with getting out of that small negative mind, asking the right questions. And and your model works for you. I would just say to our audience, become creative around how to ask these types of questions, but thinking about the models that we're sharing right now as the frame that you then can insert your own language in so that it lands for you. Big picture, being in our heads, getting out of our heads. What is your kind of overall take on what we've talked about or what we haven't talked about? I think the big picture is that thoughts are not the problem. It's hooking to thoughts and living through thoughts that becomes the problem. We'll never get away from thinking. And in fact, thinking can be quite marvelous. It's more of training ourselves to be selective on what it is that we do think. And that's why some of the work uh, needs to be front-loaded. What do we value? What do we want? Instead of thinking about to-do lists, I feel like it's important for us to think about to-be lists. And when you set the intention for how you want to be, no matter what then comes into any moment in time in your life, you have sort of cultivated the conditions to be a certain way. I wake up in the morning and I say to myself, you know, I just want to be really supportive today. Then no matter what happens to me today, if I'm living through that lens, then I've sort of set that intention and then I can improv off of that. And so I think that it's underrated to set intention. I think people think too often that they have to improv the moment and they become affected by the the situational examples and things that we were going through in the moment. Another assessment that I typically like people to try, it's free, it's called a values and action character strength assessment. And it's rooted in a lot of peer-reviewed research through positive psychology. And the basic frame of this is that through this assessment, um, we'll get a list of 24 character strengths. And the thing is, we all have all 24 of these, but we do have our go-tos. We have our top three, top five. 
And it can be really effective in the context of what we're talking about now because it does allow us to separate uh, and do a little bit of that split from subject and object. So, for example, if you know one of the character strengths is hope, and in a situation that we're in, instead of trying to you know problem solve it or troubleshoot it, we could say, you know, what would hope do right now? And that creates a new narrative, and it, it comes back to this idea of asking the right questions. We create some space and get out of that little echo chamber that we're stuck in. What would hope do? What would supportive do? It's it's brilliant. Talk about not having to do 10,000 hours. It's like I can write one word on an index card at the beginning of the day and sort of take it out and be like, oh, yeah. Or just leave it at the bedside. And when I go to bed, just look at that and go, okay, how was I supportive today? Or how was I hopeful? Or how was I resilient? Or how was I funny? Not so serious, I should say. And it just is a nice little check, set intention set, and then check in at the end. And it's so easy sounding. It really is. And it's really effective. And it's also great to use with teams. So if we're the leadership group or a, a team of any sort or a nuclear family, we can play these roles and, and we can kind of gamify it to some degree. And we can put a real challenge that we're having in the middle and then we can play a minute or two of dialogue from perseverance or courage or creativity or hope or any of these other 24 strengths. And the richness and the potential to have breakthroughs is exponential when we do that. I could even see you identifying what's missing for yourself. What's the kind of complementary strength you need in a team setting? I think of my niece and her housemates living together in our current strange circumstances. And something they're doing that seems so smart to me is they're starting and ending every day by just saying out loud together, I have kindness in my heart for others and for myself. <laughs> and it's just a way of saying, hey, this is the intention. You know, we're not in normal times. Maybe it's time to let go or at least expand to that sort of third step of the space exercise and see where other people are coming from and then turn it back most importantly to yourself. And so we don't have to do an assessment to see what we have. We can also do an assessment to see what we need. I love that. I love that. And you know, the brain is not so nuanced. It needs to be coached and needs to be talked to as if it's five years old. And so by making these positive affirmation statements and repeating them and bookending your day that way, you're setting the intention for how you want to be in the world, but you're also sending the signal to your brain that those are the patterns that we want to look for. And back to that paying attention to attention. We go where we look, as they say. So if I'm setting my intention that way by using simple language, then I go out in the world, well, guess what? I'm going to see that. I'm seeing the pattern that I've sort of set in my mind, in my brain. So it's up to us to set those patterns and really to consolidate them. I love the beginning of the day and the end of the day for that. That's a really smart and elegant way to go about it. Any other 
recommendations that you want to throw out there or things we should link to before we close? What should we be looking at? I think that we've circled around a lot of, of really good material here. Embodied cognition is a field that people should explore a little bit more. It's a psychological framework where we learn to accept our thinking mind. And there's a lot of really interesting and fun and simple activities similar to what you were sharing around how to not be controlled by our thinking mind and then also to pivot towards what we value. So ACT is a really great way, and we'll put some things in, in the show notes for sure. I guess I'll, I'll finish my part with a quote from Yates. The world is full of magic things, patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. And I think a lot of ways that's the essence of what we're trying to do right now. You know, I think something that unconsciously or maybe consciously really inspired that space visualization for me is this amazing 1977 short film. Maybe you've seen it. Powers of 10. Have you heard of that? Have you seen that? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Well, it's nine minutes long. It's on YouTube. We'll link to it. I first saw it in my high school geometry class. And what's great about it is it starts with this couple on a lawn on the Chicago lakefront. And it zooms out every few seconds by powers of 10 until it's gone from that little blanket square, picnic blanket square on the lakefront to, you know, the outer edge of the universe. (laughs) And unlike my visualization, it actually comes all the way back and then goes down into that microscopic level that you were talking about with your heart and gut neurons. It goes down into the individual parts of the body, the cells, atoms, and finally subatomic material. And it's just inspiring. It's mind blowing, super well done, nine minutes long. So I recommend that. That sounds amazing. The perspective shift is real when we observe reality for what it truly is. It's all happening at once. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope your toe and every other part of you has a great rest of your day. <laughs> thank you, Jeremy. And thank you for teaching me some new techniques. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give those a shot if my elbow is willing to follow along. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy N. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive. Thank you.